The Big Wake Up by Mark Coggins is what you hope every private eye novel will be, says Edgar Award-winning author Megan Abbott. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 17. Lies, Damned Lies, and Statistics. I used two hands to guide a double bourbon and seven to my lips. In spite of direct orders to the contrary, the female bartender, a 20-something with multicolored fingernails, tube top, and clear plastic bra straps, had popped a wedge of lemon into the glass and raised the drink line past the point where I felt competent to pilot it with one hand. I was sitting at a sports bar in the American Airlines terminal at San Francisco International Airport after shoehorning Molina on a standby flight to Miami. She would have a two-hour layover there before continuing on to Buenos Aires and what I hoped would be relative safety. The special delivery from ISIS to the Palace Hotel suite had been the last straw. While obviously intended to intimidate Rivero and Orlando, it also served to underline the fact that ISIS was playing the game with an entirely different set of rules than the rest of us. She was a sadist. An evil, twisted, unpredictable sadist. By comparison, I was an amiable lunkhead who sucked at bodyguarding. I decided I was incapable of protecting Melina, much less figuring out a way to extricate myself from the maelstrom I'd been dropped into, if she stayed in town. She didn't take much convincing. She was fed up with her father and brother, to say nothing of being frightened out of her wits. The main issues for her were finding a way to get Araceli's few remaining possessions back to Buenos Aires, as well as whatever might be left of her body. Melina gave me the keys to Araceli's apartment so I could ship her possessions, but the other issue was not so easily dealt with. Isis must have intercepted the coffin before it could be transported. Whether she had kept the rest of the body or abandoned it was an open question. As for the part that had been delivered to the hotel room, none of the family members would go near it after Melina opened the box it came in. So I had placed it in a satchel and carried it down to the Escalade. I only hoped I wouldn't be pulled over for a traffic violation before I got home. I had also hoped for a better goodbye with Melina. To accompany her past security, I booked a refundable ticket for another Miami flight and checked in standby with her. When her name was called at the gate, I walked with her to the podium to collect her boarding card and then wrapped her in a hug whose ardor surprised the both of us not to mention the rest of the people standing in line to board. This is not our last tango, Mr. Riordan, she said when we broke the clinch. I expect to see you again, preferably when circumstances do not require you to keep loaded pistolas by your bed. She slipped her fingers under the waist of my pants and gave me a little tug. And please do not feel an obligation to do anything more for my father and brother. If they will not go to the police, then they must take what they get. Maybe it was the stress from all the horror and mayhem, 
but I found myself biting my lower lip. I wanted to say something heartfelt and profound, but I only managed to croak out a whispered, See you then. She nodded and gave my hand a final squeeze and got into line. She turned to look back at me as she walked towards the gate. The late afternoon sun coming through the terminal window threw a halo around her head, shoulders, and apricot hair. She smiled and waved goodbye. I trudged back up the terminal towards the garage in my car, and it was then when the siren song of bourbon called out as I passed the sports bar. Now, sitting on the stool with only ice cubes and the unwanted lemon remaining in my glass, I considered another round. The bartender held up a bottle of Old Crow and pointed a purple fingernail by way of asking, but I decided it would have to be ten more rounds or none. I waved off the bartender, slapped a twenty down in the bar, and hustled out of the terminal. The San Francisco airport was partway down the peninsula, and if I hurried, I might just make it back to a certain San Mateo County government office before it closed. Only one half of the mom and daughter clerk team was on duty at the vital statistics offices when I arrived. Priscilla of the fuchsia hair had clocked out, but mom was still standing behind the counter with her reading glasses balanced on the tip of her nose, sorting through a stack of photocopied pages. I figured I'd be seeing you sometime soon. Let me guess. You got a visit from my friend, the Latin hunk. She swept her glasses off her nose and let them dangle from the beaded chain around her neck. Priscilla thinks he's hunky. With all that grease in his hair, he's just a patent leather-headed jerk to me. But yes, he dropped by. Was he asking for more burial transit permits? You got it. He wanted all the permits we had on file for transport of bodies into the county from Europe or South America in 1974. Europe or South America? I should have thought of that. Did you get them for him? I told you before. The records are public and... Yeah, yeah, and available to anyone who requests them. I shifted my weight and tried to look like less of a jerk than Maximo. Since I'm part of the public, too, would you mind? I'm a step ahead of you. She pushed the stack of photocopies across the counter. I made an extra copy of each when I pulled them from the microfiche. They're ten here, so they're yours for the low, low price of fifty dollars. I extracted two twenties and a ten from my wallet and passed the bills over. While she transferred the money to a cash drawer, I pulled the copies closer and started looking through them. There were no permits from any South American countries. However, the European representatives could have held a veritable EU convention, except for the fact they were dead. There were three from West Germany, two from Britain, two from France, and one each from Poland, Spain, and the Netherlands. The permit from Spain caught my eye, especially when I saw the shipment had originated in Madrid. The only problem was a person being transported was represented to be a 67-year-old male named Fred Higginbotham. Given all the other shenanigans, it was not beyond the pale to think the Argentine military had tried to sneak Evita's body into the country using a man's name, but the threat of an open coffin inspection made me discount the possibility. The use of the name Higginbotham 
made me discount it even more. Things were looking even gloomier when I went back through all of the permits and found that only two were for females, the one from Poland and the one from the Netherlands. Neither country seemed like a likely origin point for Evita, given what I knew of her history. Mom must have read the disappointment in my face. Not what you were expecting? She asked. Well, not what I was hoping, anyway. She leaned a hip against the counter and wrapped the beaded chain from her glasses around her finger. You know, the funeral industry in San Mateo County is a pretty tight little community. Yeah, so? So we all heard that Cypress Lawn had a grave robbery, and I recognized the name of the individual who was dug up. She was listed on the permit I gave you yesterday. I didn't have anything to do with the robbery. I didn't think so. But it's good you didn't, because I gave Sergeant Dysart from the Colma Police a very good description of you when he came by after lunch. He already knows what I look like. I talked to him this morning. Did you also give him a description of patent leatherhead? I did, and I called Dysart later to let him know that he came by again looking for more permits and directions to Holy Cross. Holy Cross? She unraveled her finger from the chain and replaced her reading glasses. She fished through the stack of photocopies to pull out the one from Spain. There, she said. The cemetery where Mr. Higginbotham is buried. If I were you, I wouldn't schedule any late-night visits to his grave. I'm guessing Sergeant Dysart and his men wouldn't like that. I smiled a smile that felt phony and used car salesmanish. It never occurred to me. You wouldn't be planning on calling Sergeant Dysart about my latest visit, too. She dropped Higginbotham's permit to the top of the stack and pushed them over to me again. As soon as you walk out of here. I nodded. Please let Sergeant Dysart know I'm spending another quiet evening at home, working hard at minding my own business. I was good to my word, too. After locking the satchel containing Araceli's head in the minuscule storage space I had in the basement of my building, I rode the elevator back to my third-floor apartment and swan-dived into bed. I didn't have another drink, I didn't eat dinner, and I didn't worry about the shrinking habitat of the polar bearer. I just went to sleep. When the ringing of my cell phone woke me the next morning, I had a hard time thinking of a good reason to alter my bed-first policy. I knew that Molina's plane to Argentina couldn't have touched down yet, and I had little reason to talk to anyone else. The caller worked hard to persuade me otherwise. Unlike me, he knew where the redial button was on his phone, and he wasn't afraid to use it. After the third round of ringing, I combat crawled my way out of bed to the chair where I'd hung my jacket. I pulled the phone out of the breast pocket and flipped it open without even bothering to check the number. I rolled over on my back and relaxed my head to the floor before saying a word. Reardon, I growled. What have you done for me, Reardon? The voice was male and Latin-sounding, but given the crowd I'd been running with, that didn't exactly narrow it down. Who's this? Forgotten already? Your employer. The one who holds the keys to your continued liberty. General Vilas. The very one, and the question stands, what have you done for me? 
I examined the armadillo-shaped water stain on the ceiling and pondered how cocky I was feeling. Pretty cocky when it came to Vilas and his team of second stringers, I decided. I'll tell you what I haven't done for you. I haven't told you to go dig up poor Freddie Higginbotham at Holy Cross Cemetery. What was he wearing? A blue gabardine number with a Shriners pin on the lapel, I'm betting. Shut up. How did you know about that? I didn't, until just now. But it was the obvious next move from your grandson. Anyone get hurt? There was a menacing silence on the other end of the line, and I worried that I pushed him too far. No one got hurt, he said at last. Not even the police. They were hardly equipped to deal with half a dozen men with automatic weapons. But now you make me wonder if you alerted them to our plans. If that is true, you will soon regret it. The only one who alerted them to anything was Maximo. You need someone who operates with a little more subtlety. Which brings us back to you and your progress report. I'm making progress, I lied. But I need a down payment on the hundred grand to cover expenses and such. Pay them out of your own pocket. What if I need to bribe someone, like a funeral director, say, and he wants more cash than I can raise? Do you need to bribe a funeral director? I didn't know what I needed, but I wanted to give Vilas something to chew on. Hypothetically, I hedged. Vilas said something harsh and guttural in Spanish. If you need to bribe someone, introduce him to me, and I will judge if the investment is worthwhile. But I want results, soon. Or the San Francisco Police Department will be receiving a very solid tip concerning you and a murder. Got it. But if I might offer a little advice in return, before you plan anything else again like the Higginbotham operation, you might want to check in with me. I could save you a lot of grief. If I didn't know any better, Mr. Reardon, I would think you were trying to get a pipeline into whatever information we obtain independently from you. Don't worry about what we do. Worry about what you do. Find Evita for me. You can expect a call from me tomorrow at the same time. Goodbye. Vilas hung up with a loud click, and I let the phone slide from my ear to the floor. I stared some more at the stain on the ceiling and decided it looked more like a dolphin than an armadillo. I was tempted to remain on my back, contemplating Rorschach tests all day. Then I thought about my visit to the vital statistics office and the clerk's promise to call Sergeant Dysart. I'd known another conversation with him was in my future, but if Vilas had tangled with the coma police last night at the Holy Cross Cemetery, the conversation was coming sooner than later. It might go better if I didn't greet him in boxer shorts. I rolled over onto my side and levered myself upright. Lying under the chair where my jacket was hanging was a folded sheet of pen-fed paper. In my struggle to retrieve my cell phone, I must have pulled it from the breast pocket of the jacket at the same time. I snagged the paper with my big toe and drew it towards me, unfolding it on the floor when I pulled it in range. I recognized it as the list of females buried in 1974 at the Mountain View Cemetery that Jeff Arrow had given me oh so long ago. At the time, I thought I was looking for a woman named Maria de Magistris 
and it didn't seem to be of any value. Now, I wondered if it didn't represent a kind of treasure map. There were 16 names on the list, and nine have been struck off by Arrow because they had been interred in family mausoleums. As I'd noticed before, none of the remaining seven had a Latin name. However, one of the discarded nine was dubbed Esmeralda Pena. E.P., the same initials as Avita Perón. It struck me that an above-ground burial was a better way to preserve a body, no matter how well it had been embalmed. And while Arrow had eliminated the mausoleums because of their connection to big Bay Area families, would it really be that hard to buy one's way into La Familia Peña? Maybe it was time for me to find out. You have been listening to The Big Wake Up, a book Publishers Weekly described as outstanding in a starred review. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>